You are listening to an audio resource produced by Faith Presbyterian Church in Anchorage, Alaska. If you would like to learn more about the life and ministry of Faith Presbyterian, you can do so by visiting us online at faithanchorage.org. It's been a while since we've been in Luke's Gospel. I want us to pick up where we left off some seven weeks ago. And uh, to do that, we need to open our Bibles to Luke uh, chapter 4, and I'll begin at verse 16. Uh, I I want to, as is my habit, to just keep checking us uh, in the passage itself over the course of the sermon. And so it would be helpful if you actually, if you had a Bible open. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we can can get a Bible to you if you just just wave your hand a little bit. Uh, Maybe uh, Shondor or Greg uh, can uh, can get get a Bible, and Jason can get a Bible to you as well. So Luke chapter uh, 4, verse 16, and and really what we're looking at is we're looking at uh, Jesus' public ministry beginning. So we know that from three years after this point, Jesus is going to die on the cross. And so uh, we're looking at the very beginning of his public ministry. Uh, little theologians, let me, let me not tell you specifically what to draw, but just offer this, this sentence. How far will God travel to find you? Can you draw that, little theologians? How far will God travel to find you? I don't, I don't know how you'll draw that. I never know. Uh, the, this letter is addressed to a man by the name of Theophilus, and Theophilus is uh, struggling with a lack of assurance. On some level, it's hard to know um, how deep that struggle is, but Luke is going to make sure that Theophilus knows how far God will travel to find him. So that's your question. How far will God travel to find you? So that's uh, your job. Let's, uh, let's look at Luke chapter 4 and begin at uh, verse 16. Uh, let, me, uh, let me first pray for us before we read God's Word. Uh, Father, would you please be with me as I preach? That rather than a leader, I would be a servant, a servant of servants, that I might proclaim not my message, but Jesus' message, even as it is so humbling to preach a sermon that Jesus himself preaches. Holy Spirit, would you be with the listeners, that the listeners' hearts would be enlivened to hear the gospel, and that the listeners' hearts would be gracious for the earthly speaker who is uh, proclaiming this gospel that is not his own. Spirit, enliven our hearts to your holy word. In the name of our lovely Jesus, amen. Luke chapter 4, uh, beginning at, uh, at verse 16. Look at God's word with me. <clears throat> and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor." And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. 
And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. This is the word of our Lord. You see, this is a very public ministry, isn't it? We've already uh, read, well, already seven weeks ago, read about the uh, baptism of Jesus. And John the Baptist is then uh, imprisoned, and Jesus begins his preaching ministry. So that's kind of a general schema of uh, Jesus is baptized, John the Baptist is imprisoned, and then Jesus begins this his public preaching ministry. And just real quickly, what I want to encourage you to listen for in this passage is that the gospel is meant for the most unexpected kinds of people. That's why Jesus references the ministry of Elijah and Elisha, the widow of Zarephath of Sidon and uh, the Assyrian Naaman, because the gospel is meant for just the most unexpected kinds of people. You never know who is going to hear the gospel and believe. And Jesus goes straight to these two unlikely candidates. But also what you should be hearing in the sermon is not only that the gospel is meant for the most unexpected kinds of people, because that makes it a little bit more objective, right? That you're, you just want to offer this principially, that the gospel is meant for the most unexpected kinds of people, and then we want to celebrate that principle of the gospel. But I don't want you to stop there. I want you to make the statement subjective. I want you to understand that you're part of the unexpected believers, The gospel sure is meant for the most unexpected kinds of people. We can all nod our heads. I hope you're willing to nod your head to that. But you have to nod your head to yourself that you are a very unlikely candidate for the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're here as a believer, how unlikely a candidate you were for the gospel to come, for Jesus to chase you down and to save you. And if you're here this morning as uh, as someone who is not a believer, this is an extraordinary encouragement to you. There is no way that you can bury yourself so deep in your filth that you can be unapproached by Jesus. He, He can come even to you. Even to you. The gospel is meant for the most unexpected kinds of people, including you. I want to begin by asking this question. This is the first point of the sermon. Why the placement of this Nazareth sermon right here? 
This is the sermon that Luke opens up with. Why is he doing that? And the, the reason this question is important is because I think that if we answer this question, we see how uh, pressingly important this is upon Theophilus. It's almost as if we're able to peer into the pastor's heart, Luke being the pastor. And we're seeing that what Luke is doing is he is organizing the life and ministry of Jesus in such a way uh, that it brings great encouragement to Theophilus. At least that's, that's my hypothesis. Hypothesis. The question before us is this, why place the Nazareth sermon here? Let me tell you why that's an important question. You see, Jesus has just been baptized. The Holy Spirit has descended upon him. God has stated that this is my son with whom I am well pleased. This is Luke 3, 21 and 22. Those things have happened. The Holy Spirit then leads Jesus into a temptation of 40 days and 40 nights. And then as Jesus comes out of that season of temptation, we read in Luke 4, 14 through 15. You can look at it yourself. The passage right before this sermon, the passage says this, 4, 14. Jesus returned, that is returned from the temptation, in the power of the Spirit to Galilee and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country and he taught in their synagogues, and listen to this, being glorified by all. Being glorified by all. But this audience at Nazareth is actually not glorifying Jesus, they're looking to hurl him off of a cliff. So why, Luke? Why, on the heels of Luke 4, 14, and 15, would you then begin with this sermon? You see why it's an interesting question. Why are you doing that? Uh, consider this as well. In verse 23, uh, we read this. This is a part of the sermon that we've just looked at. Uh, we read, We have heard what you did at Capernaum. Do here in your hometown as well. So clearly, Jesus has already had some kind of preaching ministry prior to this sermon in Nazareth. And you can, in fact, read a bit about that preaching ministry if you skip forward to Luke 4:31. Listen to this. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee. Okay, so Luke, uh, Luke knows that Jesus had a preaching ministry prior to his Nazareth preaching ministry so that Jesus uh, could read their hearts and know that they want him to do the stuff he's already done in Capernaum. But Luke begins with this sermon, not the preaching ministry in Capernaum. Why? Why does he do that? And you can also keep this in mind as well, that when we read of this sermon in Matthew's gospel and in Mark's gospel, uh, the sermon actually falls pretty late in, the in their gospel accounts. There's a lot of preaching that takes place before this Nazareth sermon, but Luke is doing something here, and I think this should be your conversation around the table at lunch. Why is Luke doing this? Here's, here's why I think he's doing that. I think that Luke is very sensitive to the struggles of doubt that Theophilus is facing. I think that he's very sensitive to the struggles of doubt that Theophilus is facing. And he leads off with this preaching ministry of Jesus to uh, bring to bear on the heart of Theophilus some important gospel truths. Um, when I think of Theophilus, again, we're not told very much about him. He shows up in the beginning of Luke. He shows up again in the beginning of Acts. Luke wrote both of those, both of those books. And Theophilus is a Gentile. And Theophilus is a man who becomes a believer, but Theophilus is one of those men who has heard that there is a large number of people who actually don't believe in Jesus. I believe in Jesus as a Gentile, 
But there's a lot of people who don't believe in Jesus. Theophilus knows this. And not only this, Theophilus is thinking, okay, there's a lot of people who don't believe in Jesus, and a lot of those people were actually really close to him. Theophilus never met Jesus. Theophilus doesn't know the landscape upon which Jesus walked. Theophilus, for, uh, Theophilus um, we don't know where he lives, but he probably le- lives near Troas, which is where Luke is from. But we don't know. But Theophilus knows that there are these people called Jews. And these people, even the ones that were very close to Jesus, even those people rejected Jesus. And here I am, separated from Jesus, never having met Jesus. How is it that I can go on believing in Jesus when there are people who were right there with that man? And they refused to believe him. Can you feel that doubt? When you meet someone whom you respect highly, uh, they are very intelligent, they are very moral people, and yet they do not believe in your Jesus. You ever think about that? It's one of the reasons why we should have a, a lot of non-believing friends. They remind us of things. They, they put us on the heels of our feet. People with very good morals, people who are very intelligent, and yet they don't believe in Jesus. And I wonder if Theophilus is contemplating that. These Jews are right there with him. They heard the man preach in the flesh, and yet they rejected him. I wonder if that has something to do with some of the doubts that Theophilus is struggling with. And, of course, it's Luke that's going to start off with that rejection. And Luke is going to say that that rejection is found in the words of Isaiah 6, where Isaiah uh, says that there are these people who hear, but they don't understand. They see, but they don't perceive. Jesus is going to quote that very scripture from Isaiah 6 to those who, re- who are rejecting him in his life. And I wonder if, if Luke is just saying, Theophilus, I get it. Yes, I understand Jews, they should know best of all. They should be the most ardent followers of Jesus of Nazareth. And I know that you know a lot of Jews, and they don't seem to be those ardent followers that you would expect. And Luke is saying to Theophilus, I get it, but wait. I get it, but wait. You see, Jesus was rejected from the very beginning. It's not like people needed time to think about him. He was rejected from the very beginning. There were things in his message that offended immediately. And rather than uh, skirting that issue, Luke goes straight to that issue. I think that's, I think that's one, one of the reasons why Luke is going to lead off with this Nazareth sermon. Theophilus has heard that there are people very close to Jesus who actually don't believe in him. I think also Theophilus wants to hear that there really is hope for a Gentile like himself. And that also shows up in this Nazareth sermon where Jesus very pointedly goes to a hated, marginalized people, two kind of hated, marginalized people. And not only a, a widow of Sidon, but also a general of a foreign nation, Syria. And Luke wants Theophilus to see that from the very beginning, the gospel was a blessing to the nations. From the very beginning, part of God's covenant promises was that uh, people from far away, a lot like you, Theophilus, would hear the gospel of grace 
and become believers in Jesus Christ. I think that the answer to the question, why the placement of this Nazareth sermon here, the answer has something to do with Luke's pastoral concern for Theophilus, a, a way of reminding Theophilus that yes, it is true that many people close to Jesus rejected him, but that's always been the case of prophets. And yes, Theophilus, it's true, you feel very distant from those people, but that distance is exactly what led to the healing and the care of this, the widow of Zarephath and the general Naaman. And Luke then describes one single Sabbath day. This is the second point of the sermon. Luke describes a Sabbath day, just one, and what Jesus does on that Sabbath day. And I want you to think about Jesus doing three things. He promises, he perceives, and he preaches. They're all, they really did work out to be that way. He promises, he perceives, and he preaches. That's what happens on this particular Sabbath morning. Jesus' custom, we're told, was to actually participate in the weekly synagogue life. And the synagogue life is actually a pretty young system. We read nothing about the synagogue in the Old Testament. The, the synagogue actually is formalized in those 400 years between the Old and the New Testament. And this uh, system of worshiping outside of the city of Jerusalem is a system that Jesus willingly participated in. It was his custom to do this. In fact, if we look at Scripture, this really is the oldest known account of a synagogue service. And Jesus willingly participates. He, he goes and he is a part of the synagogue worship with the people on the Sabbath. Uh, he has been doing this for his entire life. And he's invited to read, not, not uncommon, he would be invited to read. Uh, many of the men would be invited to read. And Jesus is invited, and he is uh, given the scroll of Isaiah. Isn't that interesting? Jesus didn't pick the scroll. Jesus picked the passage, but he didn't pick the scroll. I, I, not to make too much of this, but we have this wonderful combination of the choice of Jesus and the sovereignty of God. Again, not to make too much of that, but the, soul was, the, the scroll was picked for him. Jesus opens the scroll, and he picks the passage that he's going to read from. And as he is invited to read, he actually doesn't read the line before, and he doesn't read the line after. I know that's stating the obvious, but think about that. Our Savior is actually looking at a written document, and he's looking at, uh, he's looking at words before him, but he's, he's singularly focusing on a certain two verses. Of course, there's no verses in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, but Jesus doesn't read the line, the Hebrew line before. The Hebrew line before says, I am the Lord, it is time, I will hasten it. Doesn't read that. Why wouldn't he read that? skips that line. And he stops before reading the line at the very bottom, which says, the day of the vengeance of our God. He doesn't read that line either. Both of those lines, it would make sense. I am the Lord. God's vengeance is here. But he doesn't. He focuses on the center. And he focuses on what happens after the Spirit of God is upon him. Isn't that interesting? He focuses on what happens in the passage from Isaiah 61. He focuses on the things that happen after the Spirit of God is upon him and anoints him. That's exactly what happened to Jesus. The Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus at his baptism. 
And then the Holy Spirit actually accompanies him and anoints him during the 40 days of temptation. Those things have just happened to our Savior. And Jesus goes to that passage. And when we go to that passage, we see that what Jesus wants them to understand is he wants them to understand the message of the gospel. He wants them to see that after the Spirit of God is upon me, and after I have been anointed by the Holy Spirit, I will do this. I will bring good news. I want to say more about that uh, just in just a little bit, but notice how remarkable that Jesus goes to a promise of good news. And listen to what he promises. Isaiah 60 through 66 Isaiah ends at chapter 66, so those last six chapters of Isaiah, they are beautiful. They're glorious scriptures, and yet they were written during such a dark time. Assyria, uh, as an empire, has already defeated the northern kingdom, so ten of the twelve tribes of Israel have already been destroyed. They've already been destroyed. So looking north, culturally, all that land, those initial ten tribes of Israel, culturally, that's Assyria. Culturally, it's Assyria. All of the territories in the north were Assyrian. And actually in the south, which is uh, the uh, audience that Isaiah is addressing in Judah and Jerusalem, there was anger, there was immorality, there was idolatry, and there was profound cultural decay. That is the season in which Isaiah 60 through 66 were written. And yet I've already told you those chapters are so beautiful. They're glorious. And yet the world at the time is riddled with decay. You know, I, I wonder if that's how many of us feel this morning. That we live in a land that is just riddled with decay. And it's not just a matter of the decision of the Supreme Court earlier this week. It's simply the trajectory that we are on as a culture. How is it that we can live in a land that seems to be changing so rapidly that people who are still alive look backwards and the place that they remember is nothing like the place that they see today? Cultural decay. And yet it was in this midst of cultural decay that Isaiah 60 through 66 are written. And Isaiah, as he's writing by the Holy Spirit, he's training the ears of the people to hear God's covenant faithfulness. In fact, what Isaiah says is he says that God's news breaks into the cultural decay. When Isaiah says that he is bringing news, he's using a Hebrew word, uh, vishar, that refers to the action of the news. It's not the content of the news. It's God breaking into that cultural decay. And what is he proclaiming? The same message that was proclaimed to Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17. All of those promises God is still proclaim, proclaiming regardless of the decay. And as Isaiah writes, Isaiah 61 verse 1, he says that the news breaks into the world. It breaks into the world. It's from afar and it leans at us and dives into a world in Isaiah's day that is just broken. And not only that, when this passage that Jesus goes to, in that passage, not only does the word come breaking in, but it's the most unlikely people who actually hear that word. It is the people who truly know their need. 
They are poor. They are broken. Hebrew is literally their hearts are ravished. They are prisoners. They are deported. They are in in exile. They are blind. It's exactly those unsavory people that hear the breaking in of this news in a culture of decay. And then one more thing. Jesus goes to a particular passage in the Old Testament that talks as the climax of God's work as being the promise of God's favor. And the word that Jesus uses for favor is very worshipful. It's very rich. This word for uh, favor in Hebrew actually refers to the acceptance of God upon making an appropriate offering. An animal is killed and bleeds on the altar. And because it does that, this individual who offered the animal is acceptable before God. That's what's hidden in the word favor. And that's the climax of Jesus' quote. And he wants the people to understand that even amidst a land of brokenness, the gospel breaks in the promises of God's good news. They're heard by people who are themselves broken and imprisoned and in need of rescue. And the good news is this, is that they become acceptable to God. They become acceptable to God. Now, what I'm thinking is I'm thinking, okay, so Jesus goes to this passage and he can quote this passage and it is filled with these rich gospel images. It is filled with a worshipful acceptance before God for all eternity, just like an offering that is made. And yet this would be rousing, but only rousing. Do you know what I mean by that? Like, it's rousing, right? So Isaiah 61, wow. 61, 1 1 and 2. Wow, that's fantastic. I love this scripture. But with Theophilus, it's going to be rousing and, and, and only rousing. There are many sources of inspiration, right? We can be encouraged by our, our soccer team winning. Wow, I'm so excited. So there's a sense in which Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, are rousing but only rousing. Only rousing. Until Jesus does this. Until Jesus does this. Because Theophilus doesn't need to be roused. He can go to a soccer game. He can't go to a soccer game. You know that, right? We can be easily roused, excited, inspired. But that's all it is. That's all it is. Until Luke 4.21. If Theophilus can hear Luke 4.21, he's not just roused. This isn't going to happen at a soccer match. 421 says, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The acceptability before God, the favor before God, is standing in front of them. He's here. And because of that, it's no longer just rousing, it's salvific. It's no longer just rousing, it's a, it's a material work. It is a happening, it is an occasion, it is an event. God has come for his people. And the one standing before them is the only means for them to be acceptable before God. He is the walking year of God's favor. It's more than rousing. It's saving. 
Well, maybe uh, you are here this morning a bit like Theophilus. Maybe you are wailing because of your lack of assurance, wondering uh, why I should believe at all if there are people that I respect who actually don't believe. People who are smarter than me who don't believe. Why should I believe? Or why should I believe if I'm so far from the event? I'm so far from the event. I wasn't there. Well, you should believe because Jesus was a man. He was God's word in the flesh. And he came to perform the work that secures your salvation. All of God's promises are made manifest, physical, material. And they're made manifest in Jesus. He is the one who satisfies all of God's desires. He is the one who is acceptable before God, and he is the one who is the object of all of God's promises. Look at Galatians 3.16, and you'll hear that, that Jesus is the one who is the object of all of God's promises. God is speaking to Abraham in Genesis 12, but he's really speaking to Jesus because he's the one who performs all of those covenant promises. It is his life, it is his death that actually secures God's promises. This is what Jesus promises, to bring about God's covenant faithfulness to the people. So, this is Jesus. Jesus promises. Jesus also perceives. I just want to challenge you to look at verse 22 and stretch it out. You know how you see a movie and there can be um, a tons of emotions in a single expression? You can just, you know, it zooms in on an actor's face and you can see in his or her face just tons of emotional uh, weight and depth. And it's almost like that's what's happening in verse 22. And I don't know why Luke is so brief here when Matthew and Mark actually stretch verse 22. But verse 22 says, All spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And then there should be like a dot, 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 like a long pause. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? It's like, wait a minute. Wait, okay, rousing message, great passage. Isn't this just Joseph's son? Matthew and Mark say, is this not the carpenter's son? Is, this, is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, Judas? Are not his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? That's what actually happens in verse 22. It's wonderful. You have to reflect on that. Jesus preaches and the initial response is, awesome, very inspiring. You've totally made my afternoon. But wait a minute. You're, you're like that kid who was here a while ago, right? I've seen you. I saw you in diapers. But we know that Jesus understands the reasonings of our hearts. He knows everything about our critique of the gospel, our challenges to the gospel. He understands everything about us. That's why he quotes the, this proverb, physician, heal yourself, because he knows what they're thinking. And to be perfectly honest, Jesus is going to hear this in the future. When he's hanging on the cross, the thief's next to him. What does that, that person say to him? He says, save yourself and save us along with you. Jesus has heard this critique before, and he can read our hearts. And all I want to say to you in terms of Jesus being very perceptive, he promises and he perceives, is I want to say to you, as a, you who are here as a Christian, Jesus gets you. He understands you. He is the one who's your most intimate friend. It's not your spouse. It's Jesus. And he understands exactly your doubts 
your worries, your anxieties, your concerns. He, t he completely gets you. He understands you. And because of that, you actually can appeal to him to minister to you in ways that only he can minister to. Jesus knows exactly what you're struggling with. And in your prayer life, you need to assume that. He knows why I'm not feeling very holy. He knows why I kind of want to run away from him. I don't know why. He knows why, I, why you're so excited about these trite things and you really don't care about the life of the church. He understands everything about you. And because he understands everything about you, you actually can pray to him as if he understands everything about you. Jesus, can you minister to me in a way that only you understand? You get me better than I get me. And that's what he's doing. He's perceiving this audience and he's reading their hearts. Later in Luke, in, uh, Luke uh, 9, he's going to, Luke is going to confess that Jesus understands the reasonings of a person's heart. Christian, Jesus gets you. Your Savior knows how to help you more than you imagine. And if you're here and you're not a believer, then I would say that the Bible affirms that God has made you and formed you. God knows everything about you. God has marked you. You, you are the kind of person you are because God has marked you in your nature. And the doubts that you have in the gospel are not that special. They're not that special. Jesus can overcome those doubts because God has made you. And you think that no one has the doubts and reservations about Jesus like I do? You're wrong. You're wrong. Jesus understands those doubts very well. And you may be in a place this morning where the prayer that you need to make is, Jesus, would you be the one who pushes back those doubts that I might see you more clearly, believe in you more strongly? Because right now, I got a lot of reservations. Jesus knows that about you. You don't become a believer and then Jesus has authority over you. Christians believe that God made you, formed you, marked you. If you're standing on a precipice, I would encourage you to ask Jesus to shove you over and see what happens. Well, Jesus promises, Jesus pre, uh, perceives, and he, he also preaches. And just real quickly, he begins in verse 24. Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. And then he goes to Elijah and Elisha. Elijah is uh, told, his story is told in 1 Kings 17. And Elijah ministered to a king that was more wicked than any king before him. This is Ahab. And he, was a, he made God more angry than any other king had made him up to that point. This is the very definition of someone who is unacceptable to God. This is Ahab. And Elijah says to Ahab, There will be no rain unless it comes by my word. Elijah, Elijah holds out God's holy word, and Ahab rejects that word and uh, threatens Elijah, and Elijah goes to a very unlikely place, the house of a widow in Sidon. And that house becomes in many ways an ark, a refuge to her, and she is kept safe for three years. And in the widow's household, there are people who actually listen to God's word. Abraham doesn't listen to the word. This household does listen to God's word. God feeds them. God brings life to the dead. God encourages. God ministers to this household. And yet it is a household that is completely unexpected. 
And the same is true with Elisha's ministry in 2 Kings 5. General Naaman is a a fighter against the people of Israel. And he's also a leper. And on the advice of a Jewish servant girl, he follows what? He follows the Word of God. And he comes to Israel and he bathes in the Jordan. And he is healed. Why these people? This foreign widow and this foreign general... Why these people? I think because of Jesus' audience, he knows that these are people who are on the far reaches of their expectation. These are the most unlikely candidates. And Christians, you are called to be ambassadors of a gospel that is the power of God to save. It's the power of God to save. There is no person who is so filthy that they are apart from this gospel. You can, with courage, go to them and preach the gospel to them. You know, we pray frequently for family members who are not believers, and that's very difficult. It's very hard to lead a family member to Jesus Christ, but be encouraged. This is the only message that saves. It's the message of the gospel, and that relationship may be stilted. That relationship may go back. These people may remember you as a non-believer. There may be all kinds of hurdles but they're not so far that the gospel doesn't reach them. I think that's why these candidates show up. The widow and the general. They're just beyond the audience's expectation. So far beyond the audience's expectation that they'll hear none of it. And now in the synagogue, it's filled with wrath. With wrath. A place of nearness to the presence of God becomes a place of wrath towards God's uh, 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 promises. Now, here's how I want to conclude. What kind of person are you? We could ask the same of Theophilus. What kind of person are you, Theophilus? Because here's here's what we need to walk away with uh, when we come to this passage. The gospel is meant for the most unexpected kinds of people, including you. And that means that for a Christian, the key to your Christian walk is to understand this about yourself, that you're an unlikely candidate. That you're an unlikely candidate. You know, know, those of you who became uh, Christians when you were adults, um, you probably feel this a little bit more viscerally. Uh, You might experience this uh, in a more tangible way. There may be things about your pagan life pre-conversion that you remember about yourself. Maybe there were sins that you committed that you're still paying the price for. And so it's maybe easier for you to make a part of your Christian walk this reality that you actually are a very unlikely candidate for the gospel. But this is true even for Christians who grew up in Christian homes. You need to remember this, that you were saved not because of your Christian home. It was an instrument in your conversion, to be sure. But you were saved by the Holy Spirit. You were saved by Jesus coming into your life as a sinner to draw you to himself. And the reason I think it's important for us is Tons of reasons why we need to acknowledge this is that when we see that the gospel was meant for, unex- for the unexpected kinds of people, even people like me, only then are you able to say, like Paul says, that he is the chief of sinners. And if you're able to say that you are the chief of sinners to your brothers and sisters, then you're able to minister and care for them. Then you're able to taste the delight that you have in the earthly church. But, but you have to be able to acknowledge that. Otherwise, you'll never be humble before your brother and sister. 
And I suggest that you're never going to be an effective evangelist if you don't see that the gospel was meant for sinners like you because you're going to proclaim a message that will be tainted with some kind of merit that you think that you have. Christian, you need to understand this about yourself, that you are one of those unexpected, unlikely kinds of people that have been saved by a glorious message of grace. We lose this over time. I wonder if Luke uh, finishes with this graphic picture of a body of people, a synagogue of people attempting to murder Jesus. I wonder if he finishes, finishes with this to just kind of drive it home for us. You know, the act itself of trying to kill Jesus is completely irrational. It just is. You know, it's, it's true that in those 400 years between the Old and New Testament, there was a book called the Mishnah, which included some uh, rules, how the synagogue was to function. And in the Mishnah, there is a, a line that says the most effective way to stone someone is to throw them off a cliff. I know that's crazy, right? But it's, it's true that, that throwing someone off of a cliff could actually be understood as stoning them, a, a, a viable means of, ex, of uh, execution. But the reason this is irrational is because no one in this synagogue has the right to execute Jesus, not, even, not by Old Testament standards and not by the standards of their current government in, uh, uh, headquartered at Rome. They're not allowed to execute, and they can't execute unless there is a trial with witnesses presenting arguments. I mean, they, it's absolutely, it's just irrational. Why would they do this? And I want to say to you this morning as a Christian that it is irrational for you to think that you can be saved by anything that you offer, that there, that there is any goodness in you at all that makes God crack a smile at you and receive you warmly. There is nothing that you offer before God that causes him to open his arms and be favorably disposed towards you. That is irrational. That's irrational. We all stand before God covered by the perfect righteousness of our Savior's blood. And when God looks at us, he sees our Savior's blood. And it's on the basis of that blood that he accepts us, that he is favorable towards us. And just as this execution, attempted execution of Jesus, it foreshadows the death of Jesus, but it shows the great irrationality of unbelief. I think it's it's a message to Theophilus and it's a message to us. Christian, do you see yourself as someone who can actually save themselves, for whom Jesus's means of acceptability is actually superfluous? Irrational. That's just irrational. As a church of Jesus Christ, we want to remind each other of this. We want to be humble towards one another. We want to walk always in an attitude of repentance because we know that we were saved by the work of someone else. We're saved by the work of someone else. And that is what will encourage Theophilus. Theophilus, the gospel was just meant for the most unexpected kinds of people including you, and including me, and including you, Christian. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you that you have proclaimed a message, but that you have made that message effective in the body of Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we come. It's in his name that we trust for our salvation. Amen.